Good afternoon. This is Craig Lois. Thanks for joining me for today's New Jersey Workers' Compensation webinar, Independent Medical Evaluations and Second Opinions in New Jersey. Uh, this is part of our New Jersey webinar series, and today we're going to be talking about uh, when to get IMEs and the best use of IMEs. Uh, it seems like New Jersey, sometimes we fall into a pattern. It's the same IME doctors over and over and over again. Uh, we see them all the time, and they've been uh, a relatively stable group for years and years and years. I'm going to talk today about some practical aspects of getting IMEs, how to get better IMEs or better expert reports or more useful reports, and then some practical tips on attacking your adversary's IMEs as well. All right, let's talk a little bit about when to get an IME. Uh, in New Jersey, remember, we direct and control care, so uh, getting IMEs to force or find MMI, maximum medical improvement, is relatively rare in New Jersey. I would also give you a practical warning. Uh, if there is a treating physician uh, that is refusing to find that the petitioner has reached maximum medical improvement, and they've been through the usual course of care, and maybe the doctor's not well-versed with the definition of maximum medical improvement, remember that in New Jersey, you're a your adjuster, your risk professional, your attorney can contact the treating physician and give them some information about what our statute requires and uh, what uh, cure and relieve actually means. So we can talk to the doctor and coach them towards finding maximum medical improvement or help them understand whether or not it's been reached in their case. Remember, you can also switch the uh, treating physician if you're with a physician who doesn't seem like they're ever going to release the patient to any type of modified work or, or regular duty work. And of course, I'm talking about the patient or the petitioner and a circumstance in which that would be uh, necessary and reasonable. Um, so typically, we're not using uh, IMEs in New Jersey to challenge the issue of whether or not the petitioner has reached MMI. And I'll also give a final warning, which is when there is a tie or a difference in opinion between a treating physician and the IME doctor that's been selected by the respondent or carrier, uh, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, the workers' compensation judge is going to side with the treating physician against the IME doctor. So using an IME doctor to force the issue of MMI is really typically not a very good use of litigation resource. Um, Another time to get an IME is, well, the petitioner has reached MMI naturally. You know, they've been through a full course of care. They've been released to either full or modified duty, and they're getting their own IME. That's a great signal uh, that it's time to get ours. Uh, in the past, we would get IMEs. So they've been through a full course of care. They've been released to either full or modified duty, and they're getting their own IME. That's a great signal uh, that it's time to get ours. Uh, in the past, we would get IMEs early sometimes, particularly in a case where we knew there was going to be some permanent residual disability. And the reason for that uh, would be so that we could make a voluntary tender offer pursuant to Section 64 of our workers' compensation statute, which would allow us to take a credit against uh, uh, at the time of final settlement or resolution or judgment or trial of the case for amounts that were paid voluntarily. As of August 28, 2018, and uh, our new governor, Governor Murphy, signed into law uh, the uh, rescission of that portion of the statute. So voluntary tenders no longer inure a benefit to the employer of reduced attorney's fees. They still might be wise uh, anyway, and particularly in cases where the petitioner might become destitute if they are not given a payment of permanent residual disability. And that would be uh, in a case, for example, in which they're going to be found totally disabled anyway, or they can't work in any capacity anyway, or there's other information that would lend itself to uh, reasoning for issuing a voluntary tender. 
All right, finally, IMEs uh, can be used in New Jersey to challenge a specific medical treatment request and to challenge the inclusion of new or different body parts in a workers' compensation case. And this will typically arise by way of uh, motion for medical and temporary disability benefits. That's an application made by the petitioner saying essentially, hey, I didn't get all the medical treatment I needed and or you ignored this body part, which is really part of the case and I should have received medical treatment for that body part. Uh, the petitioner will go out often and get their own opinion or their own statement from a physician saying this petitioner needs medical treatment in this respect. Uh, and then we will get an IME in order to challenge the necessity of that treatment. Oftentimes, simply because getting the treating doctor to come into court would be difficult or expensive uh, or would cause an unnecessary delay in the case. All right. <laughs> the rules on IMEs in New Jersey, uh, frankly, as in contraposition to other states in which I practice, and in particular New York, are awesome for employers and carriers. Basically, uh, there are very few rules. Uh, you can get as many IMEs as you want during the course of the case. Uh, there are, you can get them in the beginning of the case, the middle of the case, end of the case. It really doesn't matter. You can get as many IMEs as you want. I'll caution people about doctor shopping. Uh, once the petitioner has gone to an IME, your adversary is going to request a copy of that report unless they're asleep at the switch. Uh, and so there really isn't an, an ability to hide a bad IME or just get a replacement IME. That will be seen uh, as doctor shopping by the judge of compensation. The judge of compensation in New Jersey is typically pretty involved in these cases. Uh, they have relatively small caseloads in uh, comparison to other states. Uh, they see the same cases over and over and over again. And so the doctor, the judges, excuse me, will ask questions like, well, what happened to that IME that you were setting up six months ago? You know, this case was adjourned six months ago, Greg, for, you know, your client to get an IME. Did he go and where's the, where's the report? So they will keep track of it. The New Jersey docketing system requires that the judge of compensation put a reason in every time the case is adjourned. And if they put a reason in case adjourned for a respondent getting an IME or for a petitioner to get an IME, the next time the case comes back, more likely than not, the judge of compensation is going to ask the parties, hey, where are those IMEs? All right, uh, the petitioner must go. Uh, we can force the petitioner anywhere within the entire state of New Jersey. New Jersey from stem to stern, uh, top to bottom, is only about two and a half hours uh, car drive, any two positions in New Jersey for those IMEs. All right, uh, the petitioner must go. Uh, we can force the petitioner anywhere within the entire state of New Jersey. New Jersey from stem to stern, uh, top to bottom, is only about two and a half hours uh, car drive, any two positions in New Jersey. So uh, it's been pretty consistent that you can send them anywhere you want. Also, if the petitioner resides out of state, you can force them to come back to New Jersey to get an IME in this state. Uh, uh, oftentimes, we'll try to, if the petitioner, for example, has retired and moved to Florida, uh, we'll try to coincide that with them coming back to the state anyway for a personal family visit or a holiday or something like that. Um, judges typically don't like it when we're sending the petitioner long distances for routine examinations. Um, you've got an orthopedic injury, uh, a joint injury, a fracture, those types of you know, relatively simple, relatively well understood conditions. A judge of compensation in the state is not going to be pleased that they're finding that we're setting IMEs two hours away in all cases. Uh, and perhaps doing that for some type of litigation advantage. Um, typically, you do not pay for mileage. 
you may have to provide transportation to an IME, uh, particularly if you're selecting an IME that's far away, and particularly if the petitioner has absolutely no transportation of their own, and you're sending them to an IME doctor who's not near any public transportation. All right. There are no forms, no specific forms for IMEs in New Jersey. No reporting forms, no notice forms, no forms for submitting to the IME doctors. It's really the Wild West in terms of how you communicate with the physician. And there's really a lot of leeway in there and a lot of uh, things that can be done uh, on part of the defense to make sure that the IME doctor is in the best position to provide that IME. Finally, there's no strict notice requirements, but there is a reasonableness standard. Um, and when we're giving notice to our adversary that we're going to get an IME in the state of New Jersey, my advice is to give them a few weeks heads up that this thing is coming. Now, uh, most because there are so few IME evaluators in the state of New Jersey, just a handful really, um, for the part of the petitioner scheduling their own IME, the wait might be months. Um, for example, one of the most popular IME providers in the state of New Jersey, Saul Myers Medical Associates in Patterson, the wait's 45 to 60 days even to get an appointment. Um, for us with the respondents physicians, these IME doctors that we're using all the time, you know, getting an early IME three, four, or five weeks out, that's about as good as you're going to do. So there, generally speaking, should be plenty of time to give our adversary notice of the IME. And we do that by sending a letter in my office, the way we do this is by sending a letter to our adversary, being very specific, saying, here's the date time, make sure your petitioner appears. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're looking for in an IME, who a perfectly qualified IME evaluator would be. First, I'm looking for qualifications, qualifications, qualifications. Uh, I'm very well aware that the petitioner's IME physicians, the one that they're using for their examinations, are really not very well credentialed. Uh, these are general practitioners or uh, not board certified in anything. Uh, one of the most commonly relied upon evaluators on the part of the petitioner holds herself out as a general surgeon. I don't know what that is. Uh, certainly hasn't done any surgery relevant to orthopedic injuries or orthopedic surgery in this lifetime. And so for those reasons, um, we want to have a better qualified physician so that we are in position to attack the qualifications of the petitioner's IME doctor. I'm looking for a clear IME report, something that addresses all the issues in the case. Um, and I'll talk in a second about how we get there. Uh, I'm also considering how this evaluator is going to testify and whether I'm going to need them to testify. Uh, when I think of the perfect testificant in a workers' compensation proceeding, I'm thinking of a IME doctor who, A, can recount the history uh, by, of course, referencing their report, explain to me the physical examination that they performed on the patient, who can then describe their findings and explain to me how they reached their conclusions. Uh, but more importantly, this has got to be an evaluator who can stand up to cross-examination. Remember, our adversary's attorney has the right and the opportunity to cross-examine our doctor. So we're looking for someone who, on cross-examination, is not going to go off on adventures with petitioner's counsel. You know, petitioner's counsel, uh, when cross-examining a medical witness, loves to ask, uh, hey, uh, isn't it possible that, or if you had known then that, or well, if I told you that the petitioner XYZ, in other words, they like to present these hypothetical situations to the evaluator uh, or uh, confront them with or contrafactual statements about what the claimant can or cannot do and say, would that change your opinion? Well, that is a nightmare. I don't want an evaluating physician or an expert to get up on the stand and start pontificating or coming up with 
uh, new uh, conclusions extemporaneously. I don't want to hear that happening because all of a sudden I went from uh, presenting a report uh, that's objective and credible and based on the scientific evaluation done of this particular claimant to one that's now based upon whatever that's coming into the case now based on whatever petitioner's counsel is stating. It gets the report and or the sorry the evaluator's opinion into the realm of the hypothetical uh, which is what I am trying to avoid. So when I think of the perfect expert witness, I'm thinking of someone who sticks to their story and sort of doesn't change their opinion on the stand and doesn't allow these new facts uh, to change their opinion. All right. How do we set up an IME? Can you send a cover letter? Can you send surveillance videos to the IME doctor? Can you send non-medical documents? And can we do some prep of the IME doctor? The answer to all those things is yes, 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 and yes. Um, I really like um, sending really well-written cover letters to the evaluating physicians. And this is more and more important in non-standard cases. Look, if you have a case involving a fractured finger or an ankle sprain or a meniscal injury or tear to the uh, one leg uh, with an arthroscopic repair. I mean, we're thinking, I'm thinking of relatively well understood, simple injuries that uh, run of the mill that doctors see all the time. Um, maybe the IME letter is not as important because you've got a very standard set of facts, right? But the more complicated the case is and the more the claimant has a pre existing medical history uh, who had an interesting or uh, diversionary treatment course. Uh, the more uh, consequential body parts or alleged new body parts are trying to be brought into the case late in the game. Uh, where you see extended long periods of recovery or comorbidities that are complicating recovery. Maybe the IME letter is not as important because you've got a very standard set of facts, right? But the more complicated the case is and the more the claimant has a pre-existing medical history uh, or had an interesting or uh, diversionary treatment course, uh, the more uh, consequential body parts or alleged new body parts are trying to be brought into the case late in the game, uh, where you see extended long periods of recovery or comorbidities that are complicating recovery, uh, things like diabetes or other uh, conditions which may complicate or prolong the recovery period. Uh, in those circumstances, I really want to give a really comprehensive IME cover letter to my evaluating physician. And this cover letter is going to say something like, uh, here are the facts of this case, here's the medical history as I know it, here's everything we've determined so far through discovery, and then I'm going to present this physician with a number of very specific questions I'm going to ask this physician to answer for me. And I'm going to be as specific as I possibly can about the questions that I'm asking. Now. Uh, all right, can we send discovery to the IME physician? Yeah, absolutely, we can send discovery to the IME physician, and I recommend it highly. I would send everything that we received in response to a request for medical information from our adversary, interrogatories, which I'll talk about in the next slide, anything we received by way of HIPAA request or subpoena response from a treating physician, and that could be treating physicians in prior cases or matters not related to this workers' compensation matter, and anything we're getting from the employer, and that could be Again, any medical that's been submitted to the employer, perhaps in relation to a private disability application or through the private health insurance may be offered by the employer, or of course any FMLA leave requests or anything else that's been submitted to the employer. All right, uh, next, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, I, uh, interrogatory responses, because this can be a goldmine for an IME doctor. Remember, in any case that we're allowed to serve interrogatory responses, we're going to ask them the question, have you had treatment with any prior, uh, for any prior conditions and with any prior 
uh, treatment providers. That's really important for our doctor to know so that he can start to perhaps apportion disability to a pre-existing condition or to something that's not work-related. The next thing I want to do is I always want to inform my IME doctor about the workplace, particularly if there's anything about the workplace, and I'm thinking about cases involving a respiratory or ventilatory defect, uh, any stress or heart attack claims, I want to tell the IME doctor as much about the employer as I possibly can. Remember that IME doctors are a lot like me. I've never worked a hard day in my life, and my hands are velvety soft. I've never swung a pickaxe or lifted a shovel or even really pushed much of a lawnmower around. Uh, and think about your IME physician, probably someone quite similar in a white lab coat who hasn't worked in a factory, maybe hasn't had a retail job, maybe never worked in a restaurant, maybe doesn't know much about the specific stresses or exposures or environment that the petitioner or patient is actually working in. So any information we can provide to them about the location, and these can come from out many, many sources and many of them being outside sources. Uh, for example, OSHA studies, OSHA reports, ergonomic studies, industrial hygiene records, NIOSH records invo involving environmental testing, um, anything from prior claims involving descriptions of the accident or workplace, videos about the inside of the location showing the ergonomics or the speed of the assembly lines or the types of materials or machinery that we are using or moving. Uh, anything like uh, awards for perhaps that our facility has won for being uh, a clean uh, manufacturer, for example, or for environmental awards for uh, their recycling programs or anything that shows exactly what this employer or this workplace is actually like. I think that can be really useful to the uh, evaluating physician. All right, let's talk really briefly about uh, presenting uh, physicians at trial. Just remember uh, that the beginning aspects of a workers' compensation trial in New Jersey are very quick and very cheap, right? Because in the beginning of a workers' compensation case, and I'm thinking about a disputed matter, and let's specifically talk about a matter in which causal relationship or the nature and extent of permanent residual disabilities at issue. In those cases, uh, and particularly in those cases, you're going to rely on medical expert evaluation report and testimony in order to fully defend the case. Well, the beginning parts of a workers' compensation trial in New Jersey are really quite cheap and quick because the first person who testifies always is the petitioner. Uh, unless the petitioner's dead, they're going first. And that's a really great opportunity for the defense to uh, evaluate the case, to get out as much testimony on direct as we, po I'm sorry, on cross-examination as we possibly can, uh, to prepare our defenses for later in the case. Uh, and it doesn't really cost a lot of money because you're really just talking about attorney time. Next, lay witnesses on behalf of the employer. And these could be lay witnesses to re refute specific aspects of the job description provided by the petitioner, uh, challenge the actual work duties, et cetera. Uh, again, relatively inexpensive. It's the cost of pulling a supervisor or a store manager or a team leader out of a location for a day and bringing them to workers' compensation court. Now, remember, New Jersey workers' compensation courts now allow testimony by way of WebEx. So we can bring in a video uh, presentment. It's typically done for IME doctors. It's much less uh, uh, often allowed for lay witnesses, but it may be possible. Next. The next person who testifies is the medical witnesses on behalf of the petitioner. Uh, the petitioner's IME doctor much more frequently than their treating physician. And the reason for this is treating physicians are hard to get to court because they're busy, because they're treating patients. Uh, they're very expensive because they're actually treating patients and losing money. Whereas IME physicians are 
relatively more available for court. And again, uh, they can present or testify over video in workers' compensation court. And then finally, the respondent doctor will testify. This would be our IME physician. Um, at that point, the case is in. Uh, the judge may request trial briefs or may not request trial briefs, but at that point, the case is in, and it is what it is. All right, so uh, the beginning aspects of the case are really all the lay testimony, and then we're going to have the medical um, evaluators and medical treaters, and now uh, we're on to the reserve decision. So let's talk about what defense counsel is doing. Well, I'm really setting up and trying to cross petitioner's IME evaluator as best I can. Uh, I'm going to go after their qualifications. I'm going to go after the circumstances of their report. I'm going to go after their conclusions. I'm going to want to, uh, to characterize and persuade the judge of compensation that their testimony is merely uh, parroting the subjective complaints of the petitioner, that there isn't anything to this evaluating report. Now remember, New Jersey workers' compensation permanency evaluations do not file AMA guidelines, and there is no published guideline uh, that they're relying on. So unlike other states, for example, New York has disability duration guidelines and scheduled loss of use guidelines, uh, and many states follow the AMA guidelines for determining disability. New Jersey just kind of makes it up as it goes along. All the petitioner's evaluator has to do is show a reduction in the either ability to work or the function or an impact on the activity of daily living on the part of the petitioner. It's a relatively low bar and it's relatively unscientific, so we're going to attack that. Uh, oftentimes, we'll have petitioners evaluating reports that simply parrot a bunch of pain complaints given by the petitioner, uh, and we're going to want to attack that. Um, I'm going to want to attack them with anything I can from scientific or medical literature showing that whatever testing they performed or whatever conclusions they drew is out of the norm uh, from within whatever medical specialty it is. And I will often go to my, um, my expert witness uh, in prepping them for testimony and ask them questions about how I should best cross-examine my adversarial doctor. Um, so that's a very useful thing. Remember, uh, when our petitioners and plaintiffs are going to our IME doctors, they are preparing in advance. Uh, there are YouTube videos that you can watch that teach you how to prep yourself to be examined by the evaluating physician. And for that reason, uh, our evaluating physician needs to be ready to perform some credibility testing on the petitioner, and that includes Waddell signs and other signs of malingering or falsifying uh, their actual uh, uh, ability to uh, perform the medical examination or testing that's going to be done by our evaluating physician. I'm often asked whether we can get surveillance at the IME. And the answer is yes, you can get it not inside the evaluation room, uh, but certainly, IMEs are a good place to pick up the recalcitrant, uh, elusive um, petitioner that's hard to capture. You know, uh, you know. Oftentimes, uh, IME, uh, I'm sorry, surveillance reports come back to us, and they say, "Well, I sat on this person for five days and never left the house. You know, pay me my money. I did my job." You know, IMEs are one of those times where we know where the petitioner is going to be uh, before, during, and after the IME, and so that's a great opportunity for our agent or our detective or our surveillance uh, professional to pick them up. All right, can we force claimants and petitioners to attend functional capacity evaluations? Absolutely in New Jersey. Functional capacity evaluations can be conducted at the request of the employer anytime you want. I really like them, particularly the computerized ones. Um, all right, that concludes uh, this presentation today on getting the best independent medical reports and evaluations of 
petitioners, please feel free to email me, call me, or text me with any questions you have regarding this topic. And I hope that I see you next month when we're going to talk about uh, evaluating cases for exposure in New Jersey. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week.